Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we become reacquainted with a St. Louis novelist who writes a different kind of mystery story. Elsa Hart's now written a third novel, which takes place in early 18th century China. They all feature a bureaucrat librarian named Li Du. He has a knack for cracking hard cases. Elsa has a knack for creating wonderful word pictures of ancient China. Her earlier novels are titled Jade Dragon Mountain and The White Mirror. The latest is City of Ink. Elsa Hart, welcome back. Nice to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I love your books. <laughs> thank, thank you. <laughs> I have to say that. I spent the entire weekend reading the most recent one, and that was a great way to spend a snowy weekend. Oh, wonderful. You know, uh, your book, uh, the latest one, uh, is City of Ink, is set in 1711 in Beijing. Yes. How in the world do you research the society of that time in St. Louis? Well, I am lucky to have uh, wonderful resources in St. Louis uh, for, for doing research, for doing book research, including uh, the St. Louis Public Library and the uh, Missouri Botanical Garden has a wonderful library and the library at the St. Louis Art Museum um, had a lot of really great books. Um, but I was also uh, very lucky to be able to go to Beijing and do some research there, just walking the streets and trying to get to know the create in my mind the setting where this book was going to take place. How much information is there in St. Louis about uh, <laughs> 18th century China? Uh, well, one of the, the main uh, resources I used was a, a big book, and I, I sat in the little uh, the library in the St. Louis Art Museum uh, with, it's called Peking Temples and City Life, and it sort of maps out uh, Beijing of that period based on uh, specifically the temples that were there. So it's very um, architecture-focused, and that, that became kind of a theme of, of the novel. Mm. So I do craft the story a little bit depending, based on what I'm able to access research-wise. So the two happen, you know, they coincide. You, your plots are, are quite intricate. You remind me somewhat of John le Carré oh. in that you really have to pay close attention to just keep with it, but then everything is explained very, very beautifully as the, as the plot goes on. Uh, what is what is your process like? I mean, the the ideas, where do they come from, and and uh, what's your writing process? Well, thank you so much for the compliment. I'm I'm a huge fan of John Le Carre, and very very early in the process, when I was starting to write Jade Dragon Mountain, and it was my first time writing fiction, I I would read uh, scenes from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, oh. and I did something that I think I heard uh, Ray Bradbury did as well, where I would just. Uh, retype the scenes to try to get the sense oh, really? of the rhythm and and specifically <clears throat> I was trying to learn tricks I really enjoy the way John LeCrae is able to go into characters heads and then move out of them again mm -hmm. very very fluidly and I was trying to learn how how he did that but uh but my process is I'm a very very strict outliner I need to have the skeleton of the story down before I make any attempt at writing a beautiful sentence. And I sort of assumed that was the case for all writers of mysteries, mm -hmm. but I've since spoken to many, including uh, Donna Leone, who uh, writes the Inspector Brunetti mysteries, I think, set in Venice. And she she can start a mystery not even quite knowing who the who the uh, who done it who done it and figure it out as she goes and my response was you must be amazing at chess because that is that is you know I really need to have everything figured out. Tell our audience about Lee Du. How did he come to you? So Lee Du, uh, this uh, this librarian, came to me. I can 
sort of identify the moment. I was I was in China, and I was there because of my husband's research. He's a, a biologist, and he was studying rhododendrons high in the mountains of, of southwest China. And uh, on these mountains, you can see these old paths that kind of contour the sides of the valleys, and they are part of the uh, what is called the Tea Horse Road, which was a trade route between China and Tibet. And as I was walking these these paths, there it was very, very misty, and in, the mist would kind of come into the gorges almost like a, a snake and then rise up and obscure your view. So you'd be on one steep slope looking across at another sleep, steep slope, and these kind of windows would open in the mist. Mm. And it felt almost like you were seeing across time. And I kept thinking there was going to be, you know, I would see someone there, and and this this idea of this this traveling scholar came to me, and then research-wise, he was very much inspired by a scholar named Xu Shaka, who was actually a a traveler at, during that time, and he wrote very extensive uh, journals of his travels. So he he became very much a model for for Li Du. We probably ought to uh, give some sense to our audience of what the story is about without too much detail because we want folks to read the book. But just give us a, the, the Cliff Notes version of uh, City of Ink. Of City of Ink. So City of Ink is the, the third book in, in what has become a trilogy. In Jade Dragon Mountain, we meet Lee Du, and he's in an exile. Um, by the end of Jade Dragon Mountain, he is, he is no longer in exile, but for reasons of his own, he's not yet ready to, to go home. But by the end of The White Mirror, uh, the situation has changed, and he has in his mind, no choice but but to return to Beijing, return to his home where he's that he's avoided for for many years at this point. Um, so he comes to city to uh, Beijing in City of Ink in order to investigate the uh, the death of his mentor, who was supposedly executed for being a traitor. But now Li Du has new information. Um, but of course, his investigation of this this crime of the past is in, is uh, interrupted by murder in the present, and he is drawn into a double murder that has taken place at the Black Tile factory um, and has to kind of choose between uh, focusing on that and possibly compromising this this investigation into the past that has been his, his obsession. Okay, folks, if you want to know more, you've, you've <laughs> got to read the book. It is a fascinating tale, but most fascinating to me, I think, is the pictures you paint of what life was like in Beijing at that time. You mentioned the, the tile factory, for instance. What we're talking about are roof tiles. You know, that's not something that would immediately come to my mind if I were <laughs> working out a plot. What was life like in Beijing in 1711? Well, one thing that, that surprised me in my research is, you know, I went into it with this idea that that Beijing sort of was the forbidden city, that, that the forbidden city was where everything was happening. And I didn't realize that the forbidden city, while it was the heart of Beijing and the, the seat of the emperor's power, uh, there was this uh, thriving city outside the walls of the Forbidden City, but within the walls of Beijing, and and one that was going through a lot of change because we have this this new dynasty, the Qing Qing Dynasty, that is still, you know, barely one generation in, and uh, it's an invading dynasty, the, the Manchu horsemen who came from the north and displaced the, the Chinese uh, aristocracy of Beijing. So all of these, these Manchu horsemen had moved into the beautiful Chinese mansions around the inner city, and the, the Chinese aristocracy who had been there before was moved down to the kind of muddy, sloshy outer city and was trying to, to deal with that, um, 
humiliation to some extent, but also create create a new new thriving cultural centers there. So it was a there was just a lot happening. It was busy. Inner city and uh, outer city mm-hmm. and walls. One of the things, you know, God knows we hear enough about walls these days yes. <laughs> in our current society, but uh, everything seemed to be walled in. Yes, it was an incredibly controlled city physically that you had the, the wall surrounding the Forbidden City and then the wall surrounding Beijing. But then within Beijing, there was a wall separating the inner city from the outer city and then lots and lots of smaller and smaller walls dividing neighborhoods. And all of these walls had doors and checkpoints. So um, any sort of movement was extremely monitored by by soldiers and, and a strong military presence. And people were really expected to not to move after dark, that by, by the time it was dark, the doors closed, the city shuts down, and you stay wherever you were when the sun set. Was that because they were concerned about the potential for insurrection, perhaps? Yes, exactly. This um, emperor, still very new into, into the reign of his dynasty, really didn't want there to be places for public gatherings or places or a way for people to move quickly within the city um, in an uncontrolled way. How did the emperors of the time rule? Uh, well, they ruled in uh, cooperation with with a very large government. So you have the the emperor, you know, issue, issuing edicts and working from within the forbidden city. But then the Manchu, when they when they came in, they really adopted much of the bureaucracy that had been there before, that had already existed in China. So you had uh, ministries that were taking care of everything from public safety to making sure trash was cleaned up in the city and building walls and administering to the you know the huge uh, uh, number of provinces and lands and peoples outside outside the city in the, mm. the farthest corners of the empire. It seemed that everything went through the emperor, though. He yes. decided, and it was always a he, uh, decided everything. Yes, yes. That must, have been, that must have been difficult for him and also difficult for the population. If you crossed the emperor, emperor you were in big trouble. Yes, and, and, and in, in theory and in the kind of narrative of leadership, yes, everything went across, you know, every murder trial was checked by the emperor before, and, you know, in practice, whether that was actually the case, but that was, uh, you know, probably not. But the, the idea and the feeling of rule was that the emperor really was the father, the father of this family, and, and the, you know, that everything, that he saw everything. The uh, a constant backdrop to the overall story here is the uh, is the examinations. That is where thousands of people would come into the town uh, for the purpose of taking these exams. Tell us what they were all about. So the the civil examinations were basically what you had. They were men only, male scholars taking them. What you had to pass in order to get any sort of job in in government. So and once you had that, that meant. Uh, security and prestige. I mean, that was the the top. That's what you wanted. Um, so, every three years, after a rigorous process of smaller examinations within the provinces, the uh, sort of cream of the crop, the top test scores, would come to Beijing and sit for these uh, 
these grueling examinations. Um, and it was this time of celebration and anxiety and stress and thousands and thousands of candidates pouring into the city with these fluttering banners that announced that they were examination candidates. And um, there, you know, alcohol was flowing and um, it was a crazy, crazy time. Well, they spent a lot of time studying. But as you indicated, there was times times when that just became too much. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was a, a tense tense time in the city, which uh, for me was uh, advantageous for thinking of, of mystery mystery dynamics because yeah. people had a lot of their mind on their mind and were sort of ready to uh, act unwisely. Well, w- once again, we can point out that this plays an integral part in, in your story, but we'll uh, leave it at that. I'm talking with Elsa Hart, who is the author of City of Ink, her third novel and the Lee Do detective series. I guess we can call him a detective. He's actually a librarian, but he does a lot of detective work on the side, if you will. We'll come back and continue our conversation in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Back to our conversation with Elsa Hart. Let's go back uh, to 1711 and learn a little bit more about the people, Elsa. Um, You're very descriptive in in what they ate and also in how they dressed. Give us some sense of of that. Well, one thing that I... uh, particularly enjoyed learning in my uh, research was that there, as we do today in this kind of urban center of Beijing, people were really excited about food coming in from the provinces. And there was very much the, you know, finding the trendy place to go or the new the new kind of hot spicy something that was coming in that everybody who wanted to to be seen and, and you know, be in on the conversation would be would be visiting. So I uh, uh, tried to incorporate that description into the stories, and it helped that my uh, sort of sidekick for my detective, Hamza, loves to eat. So so um, he, he ends up being, you know, the one who uh, is always present for those food descriptions, I think. And you, you make much of the, the garb that they wore, robes being something that would differentiate uh, classes and different types of occupations. Yes, that there, and particularly for, for Li Du in this book, where he is confronting the fact that he is coming home but isn't the same person he was when he was there before. And, you know, he he was this imperial librarian who had these these formal dress robes that he would have been required to wear whenever he was in the Forbidden City or in the presence of the emperor um, that he hasn't worn for a really long time and he's had mm-hmm. them packed away. So um, I've been trying to distinguish between these more humble clothes and then what it means for him to be to be considering returning to that. Were, were they differentiated by color? You know, I'm not, I can't, yes, there were uh, color, and then um, I think there was also a, the headgear was important, mm-hmm. and there, the hats would be, the formal hats would be topped with various um, jewels or gold or silver that was also an indication of, of where you mm-hmm. ranked kind of in the bureaucracy. You spent three years in China with your husband, uh, as, as you had indicated, and much of that time or all of it in Beijing? Actually, so we spent uh, pretty much all of that time 
basically as far from Beijing as you can can get and still be in China, in, in the city of Lijiang, which is in Yunnan province in far southwest China, which is where, where we were because he was studying the, uh, the rhododendrons on Jade Dragon, Jade Dragon Snow Mountain, which is what ended up inspiring the title of the first book. Well, if you got that far away from the, <laughs> from the center, has life changed a whole lot in the very rural areas from that which you're describing? Uh, y- yes and no. I mean, there there is something I think unchanging to to mountains and to this area of of natural beauty and people who have been living within these very unique environments for a long time. There there are certainly sort of consistencies of traditions and lifestyles, um, but certainly there have also been been huge changes. And the place where we were living, Lijiang, even though it is extremely remote, is one of the most popular domestic tourism locations mm-hmm. in China. So there were tour buses streaming in every day to bring people to see the city, which ended up also kind of contributing to my inspiration for the story because of this idea of people streaming in to mm-hmm. to witness this spectacle. And what can you see in Beijing today that uh, would be helpful in your research from 300 years ago? You know, it's, an, it's a good question because not, not very much, you know, compared to yeah. other cities, Beijing's history is, is not nearly as visible in its, in its architecture and its streets um, as, as might have made it, you know, easier. But I was able to do something really fun, actually, which is there's a map that was commissioned by the uh, Qianlong Emperor, who was a little bit after my time, but just a, just a couple years. And he commissioned a map of the city and that map still exists, and it's incredibly detailed. And I was able to overlay that map sort of as a transparency over a contemporary Google map and then walk the mm. city as I wanted Lidu to, to be walking. So I could measure the distances, even though I wasn't seeing anything. I could you know, feel at least how far it would be and look out for anything that was the same. So even if it was a, a lake that was in the same place uh, or, or a little bit of the old city wall. It sounds like very meticulous research. Did did you make any of this stuff up, or was it all the product of research? Oh yes, I, I made a lot up, and I think um, I think in the end, you know, I really am so much more uh, a storyteller than I am a, a historian, uh, and uh, and and my focus is on is on the mystery and is on these fictional characters, and I I enjoy the research, but I I I use it for for inspiration and then and then really take off into imagination. Um, so other than the character of, of the Kangxi, the emperor himself, you know, all of the characters in the book are, are fictional um, mm. and, uh, and maybe a few of the Jesuits who are mentioned were also there. I was, I was just going to get to that because in all of your book, the Jesuits uh, come into play at one point or another. What were they doing there? So they were there ostensibly to to convert to to missionize uh, but they were the only Ch- uh, westerners who were allowed in china at that time uh, which is what drew my attention to them they uh, were advisors to the emperor mostly uh, scientific and technological advisors they were building astronomical instruments that would help him uh, make predictions about eclipses and things like that so he found them quite useful for that and uh and yes, they were the envy of other Westerners because no one else could figure out a way to persuade the emperor to let them in. But the the Jesuits, with uh, starting with one named Matteo Ricci, who had written letters to the emperor for 20 years begging for an audience and finally finally received one by offering to build a clock for the emperor and show the mechanisms of building a clock. So so that's how they won their place. And, 
and were there and had been there for a while, but at the time my books ha were are set, their influence was starting to waver, so they mm. were in a bit of a precarious position. Did you have any difficulty initially pitching the, the story idea for Jade Dragon Mountain to uh, potential publishers? Um, well, not, I mean, it's definitely, it was, it's a hard process, but uh, not difficulty really. I mean, I, I had finished the manuscript completely before I approached uh, uh, literary agents at all. So I had, I had the complete, the complete story and was able to do my best to describe how it would, how it could be enjoyed and what audience it could find. And then it was just a matter of, you know, finding the right literary agent who felt that she um, connected with the story and would know how to then describe it to publishers. Um, so it was a scary process, but it went pretty well. But the storyline is different enough that I would think that it would, uh, you know, raise some eyebrows. People say, this is different and this is pretty good. There, there aren't a lot of uh, historical mysteries set. It's not a common setting yet for, uh, for them. So, which is, you know, I hope there will be more, but. <laughs> but there's not going to be a, a Ledoux in your next book. Yes, I am, I am temporarily, uh, or for now at least, I have concluded uh, Lee Du's adventures and uh, I'm writing a fourth book that will be set in the same time period, uh, but with a new, a new detective duo. Do you just tired of Lee Du? After a while, I would think maybe you would. <laughs> Not tired, definitely no. I mean, one always hears what the famous that Agatha Christie didn't actually care for Poirot that much and felt kind of stuck with him. Mm -hmm. And I definitely don't feel that way about Ledoux. He's been such a dear companion. You know, I kind of, um, when I'm stressed out, I picture him sitting next to me and helping me out with this next one. So it's uh, definitely not tired, but just for now, having a sense of him having found some closure, I think, and, and being able to let him go off and have his own adventures in the realm of imagination without my help for a little bit, I think. Right. And you say you spend nine hours a day writing. <laughs> I try. <laughs> I try. That's, that's, that's a lot. I mean, you, most authors that I've talked to spend a couple of hours. Many of them just get up in the morning and spend, and then go to the, on with the rest of their day. I feel so privileged to be able to write full-time that I just want to take advantage of being able to do it, and I, I enjoy doing it. I mean, there definitely is, there are different tasks involved in the writing process, so I'm not sitting and clicking at my computer during all those all those hours. There are, um, there's lots of reading and book research and going for walks and thinking about things while staring at trees in Tower Grove Park, and, mm -hmm. you know, there, uh, so, so it's a varied process, but I do, I do try to treat it like a full-time job. When you do read and read other authors, uh, whom do you like to uh, read? Well, when I'm when I'm deep into writing, most of my reading is is research writing, mm -hmm. and or I'm writing authors that I that I admire, like John LeCrae or um, Agatha Christie, or a, a very comforting old favorite are the Brother Cadfile mysteries by mm -hmm. Ellis Peters mm -hmm. that I will always return to. Um, and I'm also a fan of, of fantasy and science fiction, so Terry Pratchett books are my go-to for a, for a relaxing evening read as well. You seem to be uh, f focusing an awful lot on, on murder and mystery, <laughs> and here you are, just a, a quiet young lady <laughs> dreaming of murder, I think, uh, a good deal of the time. Yes, it's, um, uh, one might not have expected it, but I, my, my murders are relatively gentle murders in, this, in the scheme of things. I do like the... Uh, the Agatha Christie style of of not upsetting um, or taking taking my stories into 
too dire or bleak a place. They're sort of happy, happy murders. <laughs> There's a shade of Agatha Christie in your latest uh, book, and I won't ex- say why, except that one of the murders, I think, is somewhat like one of Agatha Christie's story. Yeah, I, she is a major, major influence for me. I just, I, and, and when we were talking earlier about uh, getting started writing, I was, when I was on the mountain, unable to sleep because of the, the high altitude, I was listening to the uh, BBC radio adaptations of the Agatha Christie mysteries, mm-hmm. which I just, I just love listening to. So she is deep, deep into my writing, definitely. What about the, the prospects for movie or television or working with Netflix or somebody like that for these stories? It would be such a delight to see that happen. I a- anything mean, I, like that in the works? Uh, I think there have been some, you know, inquiries, inquiries and things. I, I love that, you know, when you having a literary agent, one of the most important conversations you have early on in that relationship is, you know, whether whether the author is going to be involved, you know, every time mm-hmm. there's a little nibble at something like that, or whether the author prefers to just, you know, type, 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 unless they have to make an immediate decision. And I'm very much the latter. So yeah. um, Stephanie, who's wonderful, you know, lets me know when there's anything urgent. But other than that, um, she kind of handles things. And But that would be really, it would be really exciting it to see that happen. And of course, you do sort of fantasy casting in your head. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, who would play Ledoux? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But... <laughs> yeah, that w- that would be fun to think of. One of our producers wanted me to ask you about pacing. Very impressed by the pacing. How do you work that? How do you know how to how to keep it moving to the point that the reader is not going to uh, put the book down? It, that's it's difficult, and that's something that has so much to do with recognizing what a process writing a book is. That you go through so many revisions and so many drafts, and I think pacing is. It has a lot to do with 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 having a structure and knowing where you want to get by the end, but but it's also something that I think happens late in the process. You know, when you've got everything down, you've got a draft of the book, and then you go in and really try to say, you know, is this a moment when the energy should be high, and instead of being high, it's flagging, and if it's flagging, why is it doing that? Am I describing things too much, or am I not using tense enough words mm-hmm. to describe things? You know. Pacing, I think, can be so helped by realizing that, you know, the sun setting can be a comforting, beautiful set of colors or an ominous, worrisome set of colors. And how you shade that really affects whether you're drawn into the next scene in a tense way or whether you fall asleep, which might also be nice. I I always make it a point to read the acknowledgments in Mm. books because it it tells me a lot about the author in in many ways. And I, I notice you, as many authors do most probably, acknowledge the help you get from people who do exactly that sort of thing for you. Say you need a little more of this here or that there. Yes. My um, my editor uh, at Minotaur, Kelly Ragland, is, has been wonderful at giving that kind of feedback. You know, when she reads the final manuscript, a lot of what she focuses on is pacing as, and is saying, you know, here's a, a chapter when the reader should feel like they're being cranked and wound into an even tighter place and instead it feels a little relaxed. But then, you know, I kind of say, well, can you fix it for me? And instead, of course, then I have to actually do it. But yeah. um, but the, that kind of editing help is, is really essential. It's not as easy as some people might think. Definitely Even not. for excellent and gifted writers, they <laughs> always could use a little bit of help. Definitely. Husband help? Oh, my gosh, so much. My husband <laughs> and my mother as well are, are my um, other two top, top editors and advisors. Well, I'm going to thank you so much for being 
being here. And once again, recommend City of Ink. I enjoyed it as I did the other two books. And I can't wait for your next one. I don't care whether Lee Dew's in it or not. I, <laughs> I enjoy your writing so much. It's very, very descriptive and very, very nicely done. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's wonderful to hear. Elsa Hart, thank you. All, once again, the author of City of Ink. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.